2: From Luminary, this is British Villains. Here are eight basic rules to make your life easier as a villain, as laid out to me by my dad. One, never give a policeman your name. Two, never carry any form of identification. Three, never get dropped off outside your house, ever. Even to this day when I get an Uber, I make sure I go to the next door neighbour's house. Four, if a fight breaks out, Just walk away. There's no point. You can be the toughest guy in the world, but you can't stop a bit of lead. 5. If you didn't heed number 4 and have to punch someone, wait until they're lighting a cigarette so their jaw is open and you can break it easier. I realise that some of these tips probably work better for his generation. Anyway, 6. Anytime you're parking your car, park facing out so you can get the fuck out quicker. Finally, number 7. My dad would tell you. As an opportunist himself, keep your eyes open. Not just for danger, but for opportunity. I'm William Green, and this is British Villains.
3: Most of the professional criminals of the 1960s went comparatively unnoticed
4: you know, my, my dad did stand out
3: amongst his peers. Because they're touchy people. Well, they can be touchy people. So the the personal can overlap into business.
4: The robbing wasn't about the money. It was about the planning and, uh, and getting away with it.
3: I think what singles out the professional thief from the rest of certainly the underworld from other from other criminals, is that they're generally opportunistic.
2: Here's Dick Cobbs, our resident criminologist.
3: When I was doing my research, I used to love being in a car or a van with a professional thief because driving down an ordinary high street, he would see things that I didn't see. I would see a series of shops and some people shopping, but he would see alarms... He would see doors, he would see windows, he would see grills. He would see, he would see all kinds of things that I didn't see. So they're opportunistic. They're constantly looking for gaps for, for the lowering of security and gaps in, 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 in the marketplace, if you like, that they can in, literally enter into.
2: I remember another piece of advice my dad told me. Never park next to a van with a sliding door. Imagine that's in your head every time you park at Tesco's or Ralph's. Basically, my dad's been on his toes for 60 years, always hyper-aware of his environment.
3: Here's Professor Hobbs again. That's what they've got in in common. They've all got in common with each other. They don't really want to get out in the morning and go to work. They'd rather get up at midday, go to the club, go to the pub, meet their friends, do whatever they're doing, socialise, do that stuff till the money runs out and then somehow they've got to go and do some more whether it's dealing in stuff whether it's stealing stuff whatever that's it but the last thing they want to do is to be like ordinary people who they regard as being a bunch of mugs because they get up in the morning and they work for 8 or 10 hours they go home and they watch reality television and they go to bed and they get up the next day and do it all over again and they regard that as a waste of life and There might be something in that. And that's why we're interested in criminals, because their justifications kind of question us and hit a certain note in most of us.
2: I'll be honest, I don't agree. I think my dad has enjoyed the hell out of his life, but not without a decent amount of slog. Like we've mentioned before, many villains had aspirations to run successful companies and did. Hard work was part of the game back then. Misguided at times, and it often meant burning the candle at both ends. But hard work all the same. In my 20s, my mates were always asking him to tell stories about being a criminal back in the day. And the stories could change depending on the audience. And definitely got better with a female crowd.
3: The lifestyle can be exciting. Yeah, it can be very exciting. That that's, that's, gets underplayed, you know, that, that buzz, that excitement. They don't all talk about that over the years i've spoken to people you know, they don't all talk about the excitement the buzz of doing it but some of them do and the buzz of actually doing the crime and getting away with it is important it, it for some of them that's as important as the money they make and what they can spend it on but it, it brings to brings to light this this issue about um business and and the personal when sometimes the business and personal collapse into each other and it's difficult to unpack you know was this a was this a personal thing or was it just about business and they're very very difficult to unpack and a lot of disputes in this world a lot of disputes were about uh, the result in violence are, are to do with uh, someone treading on someone's toes someone looking at someone's girlfriend someone's knocking over someone's drink someone disrespecting someone etc 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 because um, they're touchy people or they can be touchy people so the, the personal can overlap into business. Um, if you are touchy and you've stabbed someone for treading on your toe, that can actually be good for business because it gives you a reputation of being a complete and utter nutcase. So that's, your price has just gone up. Let's pause for a moment.
2: Let me tell you a story. So, one afternoon, my sister is drinking at a local wine bar. There's this bloke mouthing off at the bar, being disrespectful, giving my sister a hard time, not leaving her alone. She calls my dad at home to tell him what's going on. Dad walks into my bedroom and announces, we're going out. He tosses me the car keys. Now, I was only 15 at the time, so I wasn't legal to drive. I knew how to because my dad had already taught me. Anyway, I drove down there and when we arrived at the bar, he said, Turn the car around, face it towards home. I'm going to go and get your sister. A little later, my sister comes out. Followed by some bloke flying through the front window of the wine bar. Fuck me, that was a sight. Moments later, my dad's back in the car. He looks at me and says, drive home carefully, son. Years later, I asked him, why was I driving? And he says, plain as can be. Well, because I'd had a drink. And it's illegal to drink and drive. Don't ever do that. It appeared that his moral compass didn't apply to chucking some bloke through a plate glass window. By the way, I can't confirm or deny whether he did actually throw that bloke. That could have been a coincidence. For most people, crime doesn't pay. And for 99% of criminals, it's a dreadful idea. It hurts people and it can destroy families. Crime makes life complicated, especially for the children of convicted villains. It wasn't until I started making this podcast that I'd ever met anyone else who had a villain for a parent. Talking to Nick Reynolds, Bruce Reynolds' son, can be a bit eerie. Some of our experiences growing up are freakishly similar.
4: He was a true romantic and 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 an adventurer. I mean, for him... The robbing wasn't about the money. It was about the planning and uh, and getting away with it. I mean, I think he might have been a, 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 a particular kind of social type. I mean, there's a paragraph here that I, I wanted to read out. This is from a book called Psychological Survival. Um, the Experience of Long-Term Imprisonment, written by Professor Stanley Cohen and Professor Laurie Taylor. And um, <laughs> this is one of my dad's books. These two psychologists used to come and visit my dad, um, in in prison.
2: Nick's dad, Bruce, was sentenced harshly to 25 years in prison for his role in the train robbery. He died in 2013.
4: I've seen this is marked out here where he's put a post note, fairly accurate representation of who I am. And uh, I think this kind of sums up your question far more... uh, uh, Better than I can. Here we go. So... The confrontationist and symbiotic offenders have fairly well-defined relationships to the world of law and authority. But the man who concentrates upon trumping or outflanking has not. He raids the world of property and those who control it in much the same way as the international oil company's executive descends on new count countries to scheme for their mineral wealth. He is at home or aspires to be at home in the world of the international set, When on the run he gravitates to the south of France rather than south London, and if his occupation were legal he would be the perfect target for the Rothmans international advertisements. His front will be antique dealer rather than scrap merchant. His orientation to leisure values is hedonistic, but he is a cool rather than a tough hedonist. He is essentially professional in that his jobs are planned with considerable ingenuity and executive skill. But the raffles' gentleman criminal air he sometimes cultivates, his detaste for the heavy stuff and his eventual aspiration to retire on the proceeds of the one really big one make him somewhat of an outsider to the criminal subculture and its prison variant. I mean, that's pretty spot on, I and, and, yeah, and, uh, you know, my, my dad did stand out amongst his peers.
2: Nick is a member of the band Alabama 3, also called A3. Their best-known song is Woke Up This Morning, best known because it plays during the opening credits of The Sopranos. Bit of irony there. I've said it a dozen times on this show so far, and I'll say it again. When it comes to the great train robbery, trying to get the truth, Trying to get a single viewpoint? It's impossible. It's mythology at this point. Let's just recap. 1962. The gang had just stolen a box of wages, around £60,000 from Comet House at Heathrow Airport. Not the haul they had hoped for, but still a nice piece of change. Let me just remind you who the players were from the Heathrow job. Bruce Reynolds, Gordon Goody, Buster Edwards, Roy James, Mickey Ball, and in his way, or maybe not, my dad, Derek Glass. And we all mix in,
5: because so all had money, and of course after the airport everyone was flush with funds. And
2: That's Derek Glass. After 40 years of silence, he announces he may have helped guide some information from one person to another on the Heathrow job. Of course not confirmed or denied
5: they'd all scaled down, they'd all moved out, so looking for the next
2: job to do. And so somebody started thinking about trains. If you wanted to get your hands on easy cash, trains were the next big thing. That's because of something called the TPO, or Travelling Post Office. Britain's Royal Mail was established in 1516, and in the 1950s and the 1960s, trains travelled across the English countryside at night with postal workers working inside sorting the overnight mail. Many small-time robbers would hop on these trains to grab packages and parcels, anything they could get their hands on. But it was hit and miss, and there was no way to tell what you were actually stealing. But some of these trains would also be carrying mail bags of cash that were being sent between banks. And the amazing part was that much of this money would end up being incinerated, meaning it would be untraceable. The reason why there was this
6: money being transported is that at that time, of course, there were no credit cards.
2: This is Nick Russell-Pavir. He wrote one of those many books on the train robbery.
6: A lot more cash in circulation. People spent money in cash. They were paid in cash. And the system in the banking uh, world in those days was that regional banks would hold a certain amount in the bank, but anything surplus to their day-to-day requirements, particularly after a bank holiday, would be returned to head offices in London.
2: So. Every night you got diesel locomotives with the royal coat of arms painted on the side, hauling carriages across the country. Packets of five pound notes, one pound notes, ten shilling notes, thousands and thousands of pounds chugging around the nation under the cover of darkness. I'm Graham Satchwell. Graham Satchwell is an author like Nick, but for many years he was also a transport policeman.
7: For 31 years, uh, I was uh, a policeman and I've served in every rank of CID from Detective Constable at the remarkably young age of about 21 to uh, Detective Chief Superintendent aged 50.
2: Graham joined the British Transport Police in 1968.
7: That was just five years after the Great Train Robbery.
2: For generations, the British Transport Police covered the docks and the railways.
7: The main docks, the main railways, most of the main docks and railways uh, across the country.
2: Now you'd think... This being the Royal Mail, with the royal insignia slapped on the side of the trains, and so much money on hand, the carriages would be guarded by someone. This was, after all, the Queen's fucking train. British Railways were transporting large amounts of money
6: on a nightly basis on trains that were unguarded, with no communication system and very flimsy security.
2: That's right, unguarded. Unfucking believable A few bars on the window, but really, that's it. To be fair, as we'll learn later, some of the TPOs were better secured. But my point stands because in the early hours of August 8th, 1963, the night of the Great Train Robbery, there were no guards on board, no transport police. One has to say that they were sort of caught with their trousers
6: down, really. And what was remarkable is that nobody had bothered or not bothered, nobody had thought of stealing money from those trains before because it was was a piece of cake, really, with no guards and vast amounts of
2: money being transported up and down in the middle of the night on trains. All you had to do is stop one. According to my dad, Bruce Reynolds and the crew had tried to stop trains before. They did some train work before, because I think Wisby did the first one, going to Brighton. Wisby is Tommy Wisby another associate of our guys. He was actually a member of a rival crew known as the South Coast Raiders. I was able to track down his daughter, Marilyn, to get her side of things.
8: I'm Marilyn Wisby, daughter of Thomas Wisby, who was convicted for the big Royal Mail train in 1963. As far as I know, he just worked in a shop and he was a good provider, you know, Christmas, holidays, or Easter, we'd always have new clothes or summer clothes.
2: Marilyn was only nine when her dad was jumping on and off trains, but she has pretty clear memories of the time leading up to the robbery.
8: 1963 was about, I would say, about 15 years after the war. So there were still bomb sites about in central London, south side of London. And we lived in a, a two-bedroom maisonette, a uh, high-rise block of flats. And I do remember my dad's friends dressed in suits. They looked like businessmen, not, you know, train robbers. And um, my father would tell my mum, he said, I've got so so coming round, a couple of the chaps going to watch the racing rain. wink, wink. Can you take the girls out to the park? We had to knock on the door, the living room door, if we'd forgotten so We couldn't just barge
2: in. Marin's dad, Tommy Wispy, had some experience stealing money from these local
8: trains. It came out that he was one of the South Coast raiders, not stopping trains, but going on into the armoured, you know, the security sort of cage in them days where they would maybe knock out the guard or something, I don't know.
2: One of these times, he was with my dad's mate Buster. But things hadn't gone too well. Big boxes bolted to the carriage, but wrapped in big chains as well. So firstly, he couldn't get the money off the train because it was bolted to the carriage floor. And second, he couldn't stop the bloody train. He pulled the chain and the train didn't stop
5: and right. it whizzed past. So they run, rushed back to the carriage where the money was, yeah. and they're still trying to get them off the wall, And but says the train's not stopping, pulled the steering the wheel yeah. the Spray does it manually, yeah. brings the train to the halt, couldn't get the boxes out. They managed to get one off the wall, right. and they managed to get it down the embankment. It rolled down the embankment, but it wasn't where the factory was was a farmer right. who was out there with a gun and two dogs. And right. Said, what are you doing on my land? Oh, I believe this. Train's broken down, we've got to get help. Right. So they legged it. And that's right. when they crashed the van or right. something done, they said. So they, that's what happened.
2: Let's pause for a moment. So it's pretty clear that most villains knew that there was money to be found on these post office trains. But how much money are we talking about? Was it enough money to risk getting caught and doing time for? Another point to consider, how were the crew able to single out this particular train? How could they possibly have known that this train would have such a massive haul inside? This is where information gathered by my dad came in very handy. So he knew this bloke called Terry. He was a mate from way back when, when they were just street urchins in South London. Terry was all grown up now and owned a legitimate business that cleaned cafes at London railway stations. One morning while doing his rounds at Houston station, Terry noticed one post office train that was being heavily guarded by the police. After a bit more digging, he discovered that this was the UP special. Special because it was a Royal Mail train that was used to transport used banknotes from Scotland to London and all the banks in between. Put simply, This was a travelling bank vault. Terry told my dad and my dad knew exactly who to share this information with. The crew that knocked off Heathrow were hungry for a bigger score. They now saw their future in locomotives. Now, exactly which train to rob, exactly when, is something we'll get into in the next episode. For now, it's about trying to assemble the right crew for the job.
0: This is
3: the way that most criminals work. They work as individuals, they work in small groups, they're quite anonymous, they don't announce themselves, they don't get in the newspapers, they make their money and then they disappear and they they might come back to make some more or they might invest in a business, etc, etc. So unless they're associated with one of these iconic groups, most of the professional criminals of the 1960s went comparatively unnoticed.
2: Bruce Reynolds says in his autobiography, every member of a gang has a job to do, and success depends upon each one of them playing his part. On the night of the Great Train Robbery, there were 16 or so villains on the tracks,
7: all playing a part. Remember that the Great Train Robbery team were comprised actually of two different gangs. Roger Caudry and the South Coast Raiders in one gang, and a separate gang of people, including Bruce Reynolds uh, and others, of uh, Gordon Goody, in, a, in another gang.
2: Roger Caudry, Bob Welsh and Tommy Wispy were members of the South Coast Raiders. They were recruited for the job because, as I mentioned before, they actually knew a few things about stealing from trains.
3: As far as the Great Train Robbery was concerned, these were not so much two gangs as two um, networked groups who came together to work. And that's how that, so that South Coast gang comes together. And the South Coast gang, Coast gang are kind of interesting because they don't have the big names that the, 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 the London gang had. They don't, they're not regarded as these iconic criminals, but they were just as competent and they actually had quite a long history of making money and particularly of theft from, from railways anyway. They, they actually had this. The link to the Raiders was through my dad's mate,
7: Buster. Buster and Tommy Wispy had both worked together previously with Freddie Foreman. Well, you see, what you've got to understand is that the South Coast Raiders, they were anything but slapdash. They'd committed something like 30 robberies. We used the word robbery. Um, but in fact, they were generally thefts. Theft plus violence equals robbery. And they weren't always violent. Sometimes they were. But they'd committed 30 crimes involving the theft of mailbags from trains undetected. They never got caught. So the, the, the planning and care was right at the forefront of their operations. All we need to know is
2: that they had the right work
7: experience for the job. One of the issues with the, the, the robbery was this. Imagine you're planning it. You're saying, OK, well, we, we, we know now that if we attack at this geographic point, at this particular time of day, we'll have 30 minutes to unload what could be as much as 5 million quid. Right. The next question you ask yourself is how many men will it take to unload that lot and get the, get the, get the money down to the vehicles and get the, car, the vehicles away? So if you did that calculation, you'd probably come up with about
2: 15 men. The South Coast Raiders had already figured out the technicalities of getting on and off the train. This would save Bruce Reynolds and the crew a crucial amount of time in the planning stage. Before things could go any further, A deal had to
7: be struck. The truth is that having spoken to Tom Wisby, uh, one of the great train robbers on this point, he told me, and is now accepted, I think, that um, he uh, or one of the other South Coast raiders, of which he was one, um, was approached um, by um, the Goody gang. Gordon Goody was Gordon Goody and Bruce Reynolds, uh, Buster Edwards, they worked separately, They were conducting their own operations and generally failing. They nearly got caught on several occasions. That's common ground, too. They came to the South Coast Raiders and said, can we have your technical guy? We want to use this technical guy you've got. And the answer was no, not interested. Uh, And then a discussion took place. This is the job. This is the deal. Uh, But what the South Coast Raiders made clear was that if Roger was in, they were all in in reality, we know from the mathematics that they would actually have needed about 15 men anyway. The merger is complete. People ask, well, if these crimes had been committed before, what was so special about the Great Train Robbery? Well, the truth is, uh, there were two things special about it. The South Coast Raiders um, were chugging along, stealing what we might call the value of a house. About once a week, so they might take, in today's terms, two hundred thousand pounds a week. Might leave it three weeks, have 50 k off a train, making good, very good money. Um, and at government level, no great, no great uh, shockwaves are caused. But when then they see they have the audacity to stop a mail train, um, hold it up. Uh, in the middle of the countryside and steal 2.6 million or more, thereabouts, actually the exact amount, depending on which book you read, it varies, but we know it was about 2.6 million.
2: And don't forget, this
7: is the royal
2: mail we're talking about, the queen's mail, which means when you steal from it, you're actually stealing from the queen, or at least that was the attitude at the time. Yeah, it's the dawn of the 1960s, swinging London and the breakdown of the classes. But nobody messes with the Queen. And yet, along came a dozen plus blokes who didn't see it that way. Blokes who grew up in a world where everyone grafted and hustled. Blokes who learned at an early age that if they played by their own rules, if they went against the establishment, they had a shot at getting ahead. Next time on British Villains.
4: It was obvious you were going to need a lot of people to pull it off. There were various army bases in the area. Bruce got his
5: army uniform, major's cap, cat. The officer in the gentleman, glasses and some stars.
6: They didn't know exactly how much they were going to steal. And none of the men in the team really wanted to let those mailbags out of their sight until they'd opened them up and counted how much they'd got and everybody got their share.
2: From Luminary, British Villains is a production of The Cut, Ninth Planet Audio, and Western Sound. Executive producers are William Green, Aaron Ginsberg, Jimmy Miller, Hans Sarney, and Ben Adair. The show was written by Rosecrans Baldwin and Vanessa Sadler. Nick Reynolds and Edward Rose composed the theme. Music by Michael Cruz. Producers include Christina Moore, Annette Runhell, and Stephanie Aguilar. The show was sound designed and engineered by Dan Leone. Up next, episode five, The Robbery.
1: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework – Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.